Oh, man, good morning. Uh, how are you guys doing? Doing all right? Cool. Uh, man, thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Marco. I am the, the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for being with us this morning on your chairs. If you're new or if you've been joining us for a couple of weeks uh, on those chairs, we have some connect cards if you want to learn more about us or give us an opportunity to hang out with you. Please fill them out. Drop them in the offering basket later on in the service, and someone will connect with you uh, by tomorrow, I think, actually. So uh, submit those, drop those in there. We'd love to hang out. Um, I'm going to rant a little bit before we just dive into our time, kind of giving you a brief recap of where we're at. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them or load them to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, verses 18. We touched on that a little bit last week, but verses 18 through 26. We're going to break up our time into two big chunks this morning. So while you, while you make your way to that section of Scripture, uh, we started this new series on the book of Philippians. We've titled it Citizens, and I'll tell you why in a bit. We started this series about three weeks ago, maybe almost four. Maybe this is the fourth week. I can't remember. But we started this series just a couple of weeks ago. And in the past couple of weeks, we've already walked through several themes that the Apostle Paul is ultimately encouraging, teaching, and exhorting the church in Philippi on. We've walked through salvation and grace. We've walked through partnership within the body of believers. We've walked through unity within the body of believers. Last week, we touched on suffering, um, and, uh, and, and some of these themes will make their way back into our time. Some of them are going to be new, similar to the theme that we're going to be diving into today. The reason we titled this series Citizens is because as Christians, we believe that our time here on earth in this life is not only temporary, but it is also residential, that we aren't necessarily going to be here forever. And I think that is kind of a given. And so we see our time, our life in Christ here on earth as temporary and residential. Ultimately, our citizenship is in the presence of Jesus, hence the title citizens. And so everything that we're talking about in Philippians is ultimately geared toward our identity, which then determines our activity as Christians. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that I don't necessarily think it's not talked about enough. I think it actually is. I just don't know if it's taught uh, well or enough in terms of what we see uh, according to the teachings of the Bible. Today, we're going to be talking about, it's going to sound so morbid, but today we're going to be talking about death. That's, that is our, our time. That is the, the, the topic of our time today. We're going to be talking about death. And there are really two things that I want you to know concerning death uh, before we dive into this section of Scripture. That whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things that we share in common, inevitably and ultimately, is that we all have an expiration date. Right? That is something that we will ultimately share. Death is something that we will ultimately face. Additionally, death comes to us all, but for the believer, death is merely a vehicle into the glory of Christ. It is merely a vehicle into the eternal presence with Him. And we're going to talk more about that as we walk through our time. What I would ask, uh, man, is just someone 
who is hopefully your friend. Uh, what I would ask is that you would stay with me because we're not going to dive into death right away per se, but we are going to set it up. The Apostle Paul is going to set it up before we, we ultimately park on that theme. So here's what I'll do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the section of Scripture that we're going to find ourselves in today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our time. Uh, So again, if you just got here or you have your Bibles, this is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And I'll start at the beginning of 18, kind of what we unpacked last week. And so Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And here's the section of our time. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of of the... Excuse me, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and begin our time uh, in worship through your preached word, man, a a couple of things, Lord, I pray that that you would, uh, man, just set me aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking and at work um, in the lives of of, uh, my brothers and sisters, those who are visiting Number two, I pray that this would ultimately glorify you, that this would make much of you, that it would make much of Jesus as the center of our affection. Additionally, Lord, we come before you acknowledging or recognizing that we are broken and that apart from you, not only is there no salvation, but that there's no redemption. And so we just submit this before you so that you would speak to us through your word. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right. You guys ready? No? Need another break? Okay. Here we go. Well, the first thing we're going to talk about is ultimately what Paul is talking about when he says that he is rejoicing. Part of this is a brief recap of our time from last week, but because we're finishing the, 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 the tail end of verse 18, I think it's important to tap into it just a little bit. You see, to give you a little bit of context, if you missed last week, one of the things that we see Paul, uh, one of the, the scenarios that we see Paul in is that he is in a Roman prison chained to a Roman guard. And last week, one of the things that he says is that his imprisonment is for Christ. And as he says, or as he begins to walk through how this imprisonment is 
for Christ. He goes on to say that it was ultimately an opportunity for him to share the gospel of Jesus with the Roman imperial guard who didn't know Jesus. And at the same time, it also provided him with an opportunity to help empower and uh, yeah, help empower other Christians outside of the prison. So there are things happening both inside and outside of prison. Christians are becoming empowered to share the gospel of Jesus. And then people who don't know Jesus within the prison, such as the Roman guard, are becoming Christians. And when Paul says, in this I rejoice, he is not talking about rejoicing in in his circumstance. Instead, what he is doing is saying that it is his circumstance that provides him with an opportunity to advance the gospel. That's what he is saying in this. That his joy is found in the person and work of Jesus, and his circumstance is merely an opportunity to advance the gospel. One of the things that we talked about last week was that almost every circumstance that you and I find ourselves in is an opportunity to advance the gospel. The question is whether or not we actually take the opportunity, right? Additionally, he continues. He continues in that section and into our time, and as the gospel is being advanced, this is what he finds himself rejoicing in. He finds himself rejoicing in the fact that the word of God is being proclaimed. He mentions that in verse 18, that the word of God is being proclaimed, that people are coming to know Jesus both inside and outside of the prison, and that ultimately the glory of God is being made much of. In spite of his circumstance, what he finds joy in is that the word is being proclaimed, is that hearts are being transformed, and that the glory of God is being made much of. Again, he sees his circumstance as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Furthermore, in this section, we're we're unpacking uh, 18 through 20, in case you're following along. Furthermore, as he continues to write, one of the things he tells them is that through their prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance and his eager expectation. Some translations will take that, those two words, my deliverance, and say my departure or that he is departing. He is not referring to his release from prison. This is ultimately going to set up our time for the subject of death. But he's not talking about his release from prison. He is ultimately talking about his departure from this life. And he briefly reflects and finds himself in confidence or finds himself having confidence in Christ that Christ will be honored through his body, whether it's in the life that he's living right now or in the death that he inevitably sees. And I wanted to park on that for a little bit. And again, I think uh, looking at what we talked about last week is, is important, that he is rejoicing at the word being proclaimed, hearts being transformed, the glory of God being made known. And it leads him to reflect on the confidence he has in Jesus, the confidence that he has in the fact that his body, Paul's body, Christ will be honored through that. And this week, as I was studying our text, that led me to just think about a few things. That when Paul says that his body will, that Christ will be honored through his body, it reminded me of the verse that Sean uh, shared with you before we started, uh, Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And as living sacrifices, this implies three things. And I wanted to park there for a little bit before, before diving into verse 21. 
You see, when we look at us as Christians, uh, as living sacrifices or offering ourselves as living sacrifices, it implies three things. Number one, it implies that our body, uh, our body is a temple or our body as a temple. Now, all of these things that I'm going to walk through, like I said, there's, there's three implications to us as living sacrifices. Each one that I'm going to walk through, I think culturally, um, some of the things that I'll talk about we can agree to because we see them on social media. You may even write them down in your journal. It may be a concept that you have of them. But I would also submit that most of the time when we walk through these implications, we are, our thoughts are incomplete concerning this, these implications. So number one, our body as a temple. I think often when we think about our body as a temple, we are talking about uh, whether or not you should get tattoos or piercings, what you wear, what you should wear, what you shouldn't wear, all of those different things. And I think that's true. I think those have practical value um, uh, for us as believers. I just think that's incomplete. I think that's incomplete, and I'll, and I'll dive into that just a little bit more. If you have your Bibles, this is, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6.19. This is what Paul writes. He writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body." Here's ultimately what Paul is talking about when we look at our body as a temple. One of the things that we see Scripture teach us is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, particularly if we are Christians, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, His transforming presence renews our thinking, transforms our heart, and who we are or what we do is a result of who we are. I think we don't think about that enough. I think oftentimes we think about practical implications. You should wear this, you shouldn't wear that. You should do this and not that. Again, I think that's true and I think those things have value. But if we believe that everything is affected by the gospel and when we read 1 Corinthians 6, what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit dwells within you. What we do is a result of conviction. And so if you are moving forward and not seeing God dwelling in you, then you are not convicted. This could be in light of some of the decisions you make. This could be in light of some of the things that you wear. This could be in light of some of the people that you hang out with, some of the decisions that you make in places that you're going to live, and the words that you use. All of those things are ultimately affected by our convictions, and our convictions come from the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That is where I would ultimately push you in. That if you are loose or uh, very flexible with a few practical values, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it is worth examining whether or not you are being sensitive to the Holy Spirit in you. The presence of the Holy Spirit ultimately transforms the believer. So it doesn't begin with modest clothes or yes or no to tattoos or all those other things. Again, those are practical. It doesn't begin there. It begins with whether or not the Holy Spirit is dwelling in the body of the believer. And if you call yourself a believer, if you say, man, I am a follower of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit ought to be dwelling in you, convicting us of our sin, or even just bringing about convictions to us personally. 
Again, I think this is the part where we, where we miss it. Practical value has value. I just don't think it begins there. I think it begins with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Additionally, our body has a temple. The next thing is that it's our mind, our tongue, and our eyes. Remember that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So if we're talking about our body, it's ultimately going to affect everything else. Who we are in light of the work of Christ is going to affect every part of our being. This includes our mind, this includes our eyes, and this includes our tongue. And so I'll briefly touch on each one of them. When we're talking about the mind, Romans 12.2 says to not be uh, conformed, but to actually be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, how we think, our perspective is now changed. It's not just that we repent and turn away from our sin and trust in Jesus. It's that our motivation, it's that the way we think, it's the perspective has now completely changed because our mind is and has been renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. When we talk about the tongue, one of the things James says in his letter to several churches is that, The conviction he sees is the same tongue that we use to cuss each other out with is the same tongue we use to praise our Lord with. That the tongue is an incredibly strong muscle. That when it comes to the tongue, we could encourage one another with the Word of God, with the work that He is doing, with evidences of grace, or we can curse one another. And in this context, Paul is writing to the church. And this is where I think we, as the church, drop the ball often. This is what we were ultimately talking about last week, that the Word of God is also known as the sword of the Spirit, and that the sword of the Spirit is meant to fight off the enemy, to proclaim the Word, but not to stab one another. And then part of the reason we ultimately stab one another is because either we think we're right, we want justice, or because we like it. The third one are the eyes. No, sorry, my bad. Yeah, the third one. We're we're still on, on, on number two, the third piece. The next thing that is ultimately renewed is our eyes. Yes, this implies what you watch, what you see, how you think, because what you see ultimately communicates something to you. It's not just lustful thoughts, but it is also pride and envy. Again, I think many times when we walk through things like the mind, the tongue, and the eyes, we will work and walk through a few pieces, a few practical values, and I think that's really good. And if that's you, good job. I just don't think it starts there again. I think it's ultimately going to start with the why. And the why is our theology. And our theology comes from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit because He dwells in us, because our body as a temple means that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is at work. And because of that, it affects what we see, what we don't see, how we think about others, how we think about our sin, how we view our sin. It also transforms how we speak to one another, how we speak to others who don't know Jesus, what our language is like. And I'm not just talking cuss words. You don't need to use a cuss words to beat someone down. So let's stop being legalistic about some of those practical values, and some of those may have value for you. And again, that is really good, but I'm challenging you to start with the why. 
that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Because God dwells in us, it has implications for how we respond and what we do. And I think here is where Christians are way too flexible. They're way too flexible, particularly when Sunday service is over. Because being a Christian, man, it's a big deal right now, right? From 10 a.m. to 12.30, all praises. Someone's going to cut you off later today, and no one will have ever known that you were among other believers, right? Community group is going to come, and it's like, man, I got my Bible, and I got my cup of coffee ready with Instagram. And then the whole thing is outside of that, outside of that environment. It's something completely different. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us isn't just on, like he doesn't have shifts. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't clock in on Sundays and then clocks out at 1 p.m. so that you can go take your nap from 1.30 to 3.00. Like, that's not how it works. He dwells in us, and His transforming power and presence is a constant. Whether we are sensitive to His work, again, is something else. And I would beseech you that if you are flexible in convictions, or if you are flexible when it comes to, well, my mind's renewed on Sunday, but not necessarily on Tuesdays, right? Like, if you are flexible with some of these convictions that we see in Scripture, uh, I would beseech you to repent. To repent. Because me and you can make up a ton of excuses when it comes to these things. Whether you're married or single, whether you're in a good job or trying to find a job, you and I can make a ton of excuses when it comes to that. And none of them necessarily pertain to the conviction that we see in God's Word. And the reason they're not uh, found, uh, the reason we don't have these convictions is because we don't find ourselves in God's Word. Or if we do find ourselves in God's Word, it's because something's hit the fan and we just need some help right now. Right? The third thing, our bodies as living sacrifices, that it implies is our surrender. This is kind of working backwards. That if our mind, our tongue, and our eyes are to be renewed, and if our body is ultimately to be a temple where the Holy Spirit, where God dwells, we must first surrender to Jesus. We must know that our body isn't our own. And because we know, or if we know that our body isn't our own, we know that we first belong to Jesus. Once we belong to Jesus, we can surrender our body to him. That it's not only a conviction that we have, but it's actually something practical that we do. And I did it this way on purpose. When it comes to our surrender, that we surrender our body to God, that we present it as a living sacrifice. That is only possible if you belong to Jesus. And the reason I did it last is because we're making excuses about our body as a temple, our mind, tongue, and eyes right now. Like, well, if I just do this, if I just move this around, you're right. I need to do this better. I need to do this differently. And all those things may be true, but we're looking at the why. The why is that these things find restoration, renewal, because we first belong to Jesus. It is who we are that determines 
what we do. Can't get away from that. And those are the three implications that, that we ultimately get from being living sacrifices. Now, with that being said, it transitions us into verses 21 to 26. Verse 21 especially is a, is a popular verse. It's often quoted. There are several books that have been written just surrounding that verse. And I'll read that, and then I'll just expand on that whole section. Verse 21 is where Paul writes that for to me, uh, yeah, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That has big implications, right? Again, man, we could look at that. We can see it on the Instagrams. We can tattoo it if we want, similar to Philippians 4.13, right? But totally, totally miss out on the implications that it has for the believer and for the non-believer. So let's, let's walk through each one of those after I drink some coffee. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> this is the time, this is the section where we're ultimately going to unpack death, like our, our, our theology behind death. But before I dive into these verses, there are a few things that I need to put on the table so that we can take them off of the table so that we're clear about where we're headed concerning death, okay? Number one, or not necessarily number one, but one of the first things I want you to know is that death is not necessarily a question of when, it's a question of where. Okay? It is not a question of when, it is a question of where. And because of that, we must teach against other teachings concerning death that we are, do not, not just believe in, but that we do not see in terms of our convictions as found in Scripture. The first one is that the Bible does not teach that everyone goes to heaven. The Bible does not teach that. That is a doctrine called universalism. And we reject that doctrine. We reject that belief that ultimately at the end and in the end, everybody will go to heaven. We do not believe that and the Bible does not teach that. And I'll unpack more of that later. Number two, that the Bible does not teach that we receive a second chance through reincarnation. You do not receive uh, redemption by coming back as a ladybug doesn't work that way. We don't believe in reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. Additionally, along the lines of reincarnation, the Bible doesn't teach that we receive a second chance or redemption through karma. You know, karma, this is where we see, man, good things happening to bad people or what, here's what comes around, but this is what goes around, that kind of stuff. That not only cheapens grace, but that is a horrible understanding for us as Christians, should we find ourselves there. That is a horrible understanding of the teachings of Scripture. You see, what the Bible teaches is that there are not good guys and bad guys. What the Bible teaches is that there are bad guys who are repentant and bad guys who are unrepentant. And that outside of that sphere of creation, there is creator and his name is Jesus. And Jesus comes into human history and saves some of those bad guys. 
It is not a result of what we've done and because we're so good and, man, he saw a need for us or he thought he would benefit from us. No, there is bad guys who are repentant and then bad guys who are unrepentant. Outside of that lies Creator. His name is Jesus, entered into human history, died on a cross for sinners so that they would have new life, not a result of their works. Just needed to teach on that. Number four, the Bible does not teach about purgatory. Now, there are many teachings concerning purgatory. One of the ones that I'll just briefly mention is that purgatory is ultimately this waiting room. And when you're in this waiting room in between heaven and hell and the cosmic presences of, of those two dimensions, you have someone who is alive. And as someone who is alive, I could, let's because I see Sean. Let's say Sean hypothetically is in purgatory. Because I'm alive, I can pray for Sean and then purchase him out of of purgatory so that he goes to either heaven or hell. The Bible doesn't teach that, okay? And when we look at that, what we're going to head to very briefly is Hebrews 9, where the writer says, and just as it is appointed for man to die, how many times? Once. As just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So you ask, what happens when we die? We stand before the king. That's what happens. That's it. Right? We are judged. Additionally, when we look at some of these teachings, I think it is a poor understanding of the person of Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means that he doesn't just rule over earth. He also rules over heaven and rules over hell. Lastly, for the Christian, if your immediate thought is, and this is more of an encouragement, I'm going to tone my voice down, um, The encouragement here is when we hear that, man, that Jesus rules over heaven and earth and hell, I think many times for the Christian, the question is, how can God send people to hell when really the question should be, how can God save me? I think that's the question because when we're talking about fairness, salvation isn't fair. That's ultimately what we're getting at when we ask those questions. It's not fair. And the answer is, you're right. It it isn't fair. It's grace. Grace is ill-deserving favor that God has upon those whom he's called. That's it. So the question isn't, how could God send people to hell? The question is, how could God save someone like me? That is ultimately the question. Moving, Moving on and diving this time really into that text. To live is Christ means... For the Christian, it means that we can have a life that is for Jesus and through Jesus as a result of our faith in Jesus. When we first started this series, we talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And what that means is that God accepts us on the condition of faith alone, not our work or merit. He accepts us on the condition of faith alone. 
And so we can have a life that is for him and through him as a result of faith. Additionally, when we talk about redemption, again, this is when we're talking about to live is Christ. When we talk about redemption, it's not just necessarily being better, but it's being made new. It's being made new. When we walk through uh, the context surrounding the word redemption or to be redeemed, it means that we were purchased out of something so as to never return. So the Christian life isn't simply being better, it's being made new. And it touches on what we just looked at in verses 18 to 20. That if we belong to Jesus, we surrender our bodies to him because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and because our mind, our heart, our tongues, and our eyes, and everything else is being transformed as a result of his work. The life we live now is of great importance. The reason it's of great importance is because it means that God is still at work in you. It means that repentance should be taking place, that sanctification is still this process of maturity, and that God is at work through you. That's what it means. And finally, it means that we were created for good works as a result of who we are in Christ. And when we begin talking about works, we're like, whoa, I thought works were bad. No, 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 I never said works were bad. It's just that that's not what God sees. What God, we are saved by grace through faith. And as a result of who we are in Christ determines what we do. Those are the works. Look at uh, Ephesians 2.10. This is what Paul writes. Looking at a lot of scripture this morning. Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That upon being saved, that upon God rescuing us and his work in us, now there is work that we do outside of that. Not outside of that in terms of salvation, but you know what I mean. All right? Number two, in light of to live is Christ. The second part is that Paul says to die is gain. This is what it means for the Christian. For the Christian, it means that death has no power over you because Jesus has conquered it on the cross. I mentioned it earlier that death is merely a vehicle into the eternal presence of Christ. It also means that upon death, the work of salvation has now been complete and that we receive what First Peter talks about. We receive our inheritance. Our inheritance, the gift that awaits us, we will not receive in this life. Let's just put it on the table. We will not receive in this life. But upon being with Jesus, we receive our inheritance. And it includes four things. And as I walk through these, this will be, uh, let's look at 1 John. It's not in the notes. Sorry, Everett. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. This is what he writes. I'll read this briefly. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Four things in light of our inheritance. Number one, righteousness. And all of these things, all four of these things, 
you can say, well, don't we have some of those or don't we have those now? And the truth is we do, but we get mere tastes of them because you and I drop the ball all of the time concerning them. And so the first one is righteousness. What we know that righteousness or what we know about righteousness is that on the cross, God took on our sin. He paid our debt and he gave us his credit. He gave us his righteousness. And so we can have in this life the righteousness of Christ and at the same time drop the ball. Upon death, upon death, we will be complete in righteousness. One that was not bestowed upon ourselves, but one that was bestowed upon Him to us as a result of His work. That's number one. Number two, knowledge. As our minds are transformed, we're becoming more like Jesus. And we drop the ball. Upon death, Our minds are renewed and we have a full knowledge of Christ. That doesn't mean we are God. It just means we know Him. You know, that relational, in-depth, man, we can have these long conversations kind of knowledge about like your best friend. We will have that with Christ. Number three, love. Same thing. The reason, as for Christians, the reason we love is because we were loved first. And we know that, and we may embrace that, and we drop the ball on that because we will skew it with our own understanding, right? Upon death, we will have a full understanding of it. Finally, number four, fellowship. I think that's my favorite. That upon death, we will be with Christ that we will be with Christ. That the echoes of of things like Revelation 21, that there is now no more pain, and He wipes away every tear, that it will be over. Everything will be made new and restored. And upon death, we will be with Him. I think that's that's my favorite one. Now, moving forward, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We talked about those implications and what that means for the believer. But yet, if you find yourself here, or if you are here, and you don't know Jesus, here's what I would say. Number one, this entire message, this isn't, uh, what is it? This isn't uh, doom and gloom, and uh, this isn't one of those, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? I'm not necessarily a fan of that. But this is a message regarding that the entire hope and core of salvation is found in Jesus. That is ultimately what I want you walking away with. That the entire hope and core of salvation in Jesus, that apart from Jesus, you do not have eternal life. That upon death you will spend eternity, and that is a long time, eternity separated from Jesus. And my further exhortation would not only include the non-Christian, if that is you, but also the Christian, that one of the differences between a believer and a non-Christian is repentance. That is one of the differences. There is this 
There's this condition, this line, it's called repentance, where we turn away from our sin and place our trust in Jesus, that at the core of it, the reason we repent is because we have faith in Christ, that God became man, that He lived the life that you and I cannot live, that He died the death that you and I deserve to die, and He freely gives the grace that you and I cannot earn. And at the cross, he conquered sin, death, hell, Satan, and demons. And through faith, he calls us to repent. To turn away from our sins and to trust in Jesus. God died and defeated death so that we might live not for fire insurance, but so that we would be reconciled to the Father. That's, that's relationships, right? That means that we would have relationship with God. For the Christian, this life, the one you and I are living right now, is the closest we'll experience to hell. For the non-Christian, this life is the closest you'll experience to heaven. And so as a result, we find ourselves with three reminders. The first one, joy is directly linked to Jesus rather than our circumstance. Our circumstance is merely an opportunity to advance the gospel. If you belong to Christ, then your motivation is now different because of the gospel. Your motivation is different in the sense that you're not necessarily seeking justice. It has been paid on the cross. That you're not necessarily seeking to be right or to have certain things done. That it has already been paid on the cross. Your motivation for advancing the gospel is different. Your motivation for advancing the gospel is ultimately the glory of God. It doesn't always mean, in fact, for the Christian, it means not getting what we want. Because our motivation is the glory of God. Number two, until we are called home, we are to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. That as we move forward in this life, we are to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, the things that He is convicting us of, the things that He is compelling us to do. We are to be sensitive to them. For to live is Christ. That means be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And finally, number three, the life of the Christian is marked by repentance. It is not a one and done. Martin Luther said that upon Christ calling us to repent, he called, it to, he called us to it for a lifetime. The Christian life is marked by repentance. And if you find repentance scarce, if you find repentance not regular, if not daily, then you lack conviction. And I would exhort you to examine the condition of your heart. 
For if you and I say we belong to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He is the one who convicts us of sin. He is both comforter and counselor. The Christian life is marked by repentance. And finally, the takeaway, to be in Christ, to be in Christ first comes as a result of your surrender to Christ. Like Paul, we have two paths. Keep telling others about Jesus or to be with Jesus. Yet both paths have the same outcome. The glory of God. Join me in prayer. Lord, we confess that we are, we are broken and that we continually uh, rebel and reject you. Maybe it's because, well, ultimately it's because we want to do what we want to do. Ultimately, it's because we believe that someone or something else is better than you. It's something that you cannot provide. And Lord, I think, man, I recognize that that is a uh, struggle for us. Because sometimes we think it is a good thing. Sometimes we think uh, it is a good opportunity. But yet what you call us to do is that you call us to be living sacrifices for the glory of your name. You call us to be living sacrifices so that others would come to know who you are. You call us to be living sacrifices so that we would set our preferences and desires upon the altar and ultimately embrace the work that you are doing in us. Lord, my prayer is that we would see uh, the person and work of your son Jesus as enough. That we would rejoice at the fact that your Holy Spirit dwells in us. That is a great encouragement to know and hear that God dwells in us, that he dwells among uh, his people. So Lord, lead us not to just be more like Jesus, or lead us not to just be better, but to be more like Jesus, that our lives would be marked by repentance, that our lives would be marked by joy in spite of our circumstances, and that we would see our circumstances as opportunities to advance your gospel, to make much of your name, even if it means us stepping aside and not getting what we want. Ultimately, we are complete in you. And Lord, as we continue uh, in, our, in our service, we're going to go into a time of, of tithes and offerings. Um, Lord, this is where we give you our, our stuff. This is where it is a tangible demonstration of your work in us. This is where uh, man, you, Holy Spirit, convict us and compel us to action so that we would not just advance the gospel, but we would advance the mission uh, that you have called us to.